Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at innovation and the law. That's right, innovation and the law. We'll be taking a look at the legal considerations anyone introducing a new product or service to the marketplace needs to know, predictions on policy issues that could have wide-ranging implications in the technology space and beyond, and what some of today's most forward-thinking law firms are doing to help their clients earn a living in this day and age where, as they say, content wants to be free. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is our very own legal dream team of Seth Berenzweig and Frank Gulino of Berenzweig Leonard and Clyde Finley of Cloudigy. Berenzweig Leonard and Cloudigy are two of the DC area's most prestigious intellectual property firms, and we're thrilled to be broadcasting from their offices today in Tyson's Corner. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks it's our much. pleasure. So let's start things off today with what I personally think is kind of a juicy topic. We've all seen and heard stories of co-founders of companies getting backstabbed and cut out of huge ownership stakes in those companies. Uh, Eduardo Saverin at Facebook and Reggie Brown at Snapchat are two well-known examples, but I'm sure there are hundreds if not thousands more. So if there are any baby Zuckerbergs or baby Saverins out there, what do people who get in on the ground floor of a startup company need to do to be sure that they themselves are protected from a legal standpoint? Um, well, first of all, Will, thanks for, for having us, of course. Um, to get back to your question, it all starts with laying the legal groundwork properly. You want to make sure that all of your initial formation documents, whether it's your articles of incorporation, your operating agreement, shareholder agreements, or what have you, are very clear in laying out things like ownership interests. Uh, I believe in the in the Facebook example that you gave, it's not that there was no agreement. There was an initial LLC agreement, um, but they Mark Zuckerberg sort of overrode that by forming a new company that he then used to acquire the original Facebook LLC without distributing shares of the new company to Saverin. So he was cut out through sort of a shady method that probably could have been avoided if all of the initial formation documents had just been more clear about who was to get what, what that interest was to be, and that would have uh, really solidified things going forward, I think, in that case. It's all about starting correctly from the beginning with your legal documentation. A lot of, a lot of startups get off on the wrong foot initially. Um, because they think they need to incorporate in Delaware or Nevada based on no more than because somebody told me to or because so many other businesses do it. Uh, when in fact we're right here in Virginia where the courts are very pro-business and pro-employer. The State Corporation Commission is extremely easy to deal with. Um, you know, and we're close to Washington, which is where all of the, the federal laws and regulations are made. So if you're a good company and you're physically located here in Virginia, there would be no reason for you not to incorporate or form your LLC here in the Commonwealth. So as you mentioned, we're, we're here in McLean in the shadow of the nation's capital. So that means I imagine that the three of you have your finger on the pulse of some of the major cases that are making their way through the courts. Uh, one case that has gotten a lot of attention over the last year and change is the Apple versus Samsung patent case. So. Are we in a position where patents even mean anything anymore? I'll take that one. And yes, patents mean a lot. That's why Apple and Samsung are fighting. These are two titans of industry, and they are fighting with each other using patents as their shields and swords. 
and it's extremely important to them. That's why they're using them to fight these multi-million dollar, almost billion dollar battles. Um, so yes, absolutely, patents are very valuable. Patents are not always as predictable as we want them to be. That's why people litigate and fight over them. Uh, but uh, patents are thriving and alive and very well today. Okay, and, and when is it appropriate to actually go through the process of getting a patent, and what does that look like? Well, I think my, my first answer is in terms of when, as soon as possible. As soon as you get an idea that you think is worth protecting, uh, it is a very good idea to start talking to a, a patent attorney and start going through the analysis of whether it makes sense to patent your invention or inventions or talk about uh, the possibility of keeping these things as trade secrets or a variety of different options. Uh, the sooner you do this, the better, because if you start uh, taking too much time, you risk the possibility that someone else could invent what you have invented. You also risk the possibility of public disclosure, which could kill you. Uh, and, um, and the sooner you, you get your arms around and hands around the problem, the sooner you can develop good solutions and have good protection going forward. In terms of what it takes and how long it takes, that's a kind of an it depends situation, and it depends on the invention. Uh, how difficult it is, how complex it is, the subject matter involved. Uh, generally, somewhere in the neighborhood of three, four, five years or so from when you first file a patent application to when you actually get a patent is maybe a good planning uh, time period. Uh, it, it varies in terms of like the subject matter for if, if it's a mechanical kind of invention, it may be less amount of time. The PTO is generally better, faster at examining those inventions. If it's a software invention or a business, what's called a business method patent kind of invention, then it may take a little bit longer. Um, some of the art, what are called art units at the PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, that examine patent applications are taking as much as five years to get to your patent to do the very first examination. So it depends, but that's kind of a, a broad range of how long it's going to take. Okay, and follow up on that. If you are, so we're in a day and age where the amount of time it takes to actually conceive and launch a product is often far less than five years. So if you have an idea for a software product or an app or, or something that you want to build, I don't imagine you would recommend waiting five years until you get a patent for that specific idea or technology. How do you handle the, the need to actually launch a product quickly to market with the need to protect yourself? You first need to focus on your business and get something up and running and working that you can sell, that you can use to make money. At the same time, even though you may not get a patent until maybe five years from now, it still is a good idea to file for that patent protection. If for no other reason you can use it as a way of monetizing your business, selling your assets later because you have something that is in the process, it's patent pending, and you may have something that is worth a lot of value to you now that may not be realizable until later, even though you're making money on it now. So uh, I would still recommend that you look uh, at getting a patent on things that are inventions that are very important to you, critical to your business. Okay, great. That makes perfect sense. So another topic that's been in the tech press and mainstream media alike of late is net neutrality. Can one of you give a quick overview of what net neutrality means? Uh, and I'd also be curious to hear if you have any opinions on what you think the courts will end up deciding with regards to net neutrality. So net neutrality is all about uh, congestion on the internet and how to fairly allocate the messages that are circulating around. And it mostly has to do with what's happening 
uh, with individual uh, carriers, that are the, the internet providers that, that you and your house are using, Comcast, Verizon, whatever it is, it's that last part of the internet transmission that goes from the big backbones that are going across the country down to you that's of most concern. And the idea is kind of like, if you imagine you know, the beltway that goes around DC, um, it used to be until just a, maybe a year or two ago that we did not have what we call hot lanes now. And so if you are in your car and you're trying to get around the beltway, you're, com you're competing with all of the other cars that are banging around each other and trying to get through those, these lanes. The lanes are fixed in size and they go about the same speed and you can try to change lanes but you're really not going to be uh, improved, your position is not going to be improved that much. But now with the introduction of hot lanes, you can pay a little extra and you can jump on those hot lanes and go much faster. Companies like Netflix that want to deliver to you in your home video, they're sending a lot of packets that they need to, to deliver very quickly. And if they don't, then the, the quality of your video signal is going to be interrupted. It's going to be a mess. So the question here is how, what's fair in terms of allowing companies like Netflix to go faster on the Internet than other people are, are traveling on the Internet, other messages. So if you are watching a, a Netflix movie in your home and the people in your neighborhood are not, uh, they may be impacted by you downloading lots of stuff into your house when they're just texting and they may see interruptions in their text messages, their email messages, and that kind of thing. Should you all pay the same amount of money for those transmissions or should you have to pay a little bit more or should Netflix have to pay a little bit more for you to get your, your video? So that's the net neutrality issue. It's this fairness of distri distributing uh, the, the, the way that packets are being sent around the Internet. Um, I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. There's a lot of litigation that's starting to happen on these issues. Um, it's essentially uh, companies that are they're trying to fight for uh, an ability to, to transmit faster and more packets for without paying for it. Uh, and so the FCC wants to try to regulate that to see if they can make everything as fair as possible. I think in the long run you're going to end up with regulations that are trying to be as fair as possible to all concerned, giving companies like Netflix an opportunity to send their packet, their highly, uh, high numbers of packets very quickly on the internet, uh, possibly paying a little bit more to do so, uh, and at the same time giving you in your home a right to maybe arbitrate some of that, control some of that, uh, to try to balance out the, the problems when your neighbor is just hogging the internet and you don't like that. So I'm not sure exactly how it's going to come out, but they're probably the goal is going to be to be as fair as possible to all concerned. Okay, got it. Well, I, I hope they figure it out soon because my roommates were watching a movie last night on Netflix and we watched the same scene about five times in a row as they tried to get it to buffer past yes, exactly. uh, a scene of clear and present danger, I believe it was. <laughs> uh, so, so moving along, Moving along, we've seen some pretty massive shifts in the technology landscape over the course of the last you know, decade, let's call it. Do you think companies are better off protecting their current products and business models or looking to find new ways to keep the lights on? And one example of this would be you know, Airbnb, which is now a billion-dollar company in the lodging space. Didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago and I'm sure is eating into all kinds of business from traditional hotel chains. So if you're a Marriott, for example, are you better off trying to come up with the next Airbnb or figuring out how to further monetize the products and, and uh, properties that you already have? I think I'll take that one. And the, the short answer is that 
Um, you almost always want to both protect your current products and business models, but you also want to continue to innovate. The thing that varies by industry and by product and by who your target market is, is where you decide to innovate. If you're a company like Coca-Cola, you have some of the most valuable you know, formulas, trademarks, logos ever. You don't want to mess with that necessarily because consumers have an expectation when they see the red can, they know what's inside. And that's hugely beneficial to Coke. That intellectual property is extremely valuable. If they're going to innovate, it's not going to be in changing what already works. It'll be in marketing and uh, figuring out how to bring new markets to the product that people already know and love. On the other hand, if you have a tech company, uh, innovation is really sort of the only option because technology is changing all the time. It's, you know, technology becomes obsolete quickly as the next big thing replaces it. Um, and chances are your competitors are constantly innovating and constantly taking advantage of new and improving technology. So you're going to have to do that to keep pace with them. On the other hand, even though your current product becomes obsolete more quickly in the tech space than in other industries, you still want to protect that because you never know who might be able to use that as a building block or a stepping stone to sort of catapult themselves to the next big success. If you've protected your current products, even if it might be obsolete a year from now, then you're ensuring that you sort of stand to benefit from improvements th that are made upon that. And then for a sort of in-between example, I thought of like a car maker where consumers have very, you know, consumers have expectations about what a car is going to do. It needs to get you from point A to point B. It has to be reasonably comfortable. People have different opinions about, you know, do I need something that has all the bells and whistles? Do I need something that's fuel efficient? But the bottom line is everyone has pretty similar expectations about what their car is going to do. If you innovate too quickly and you come out with something tomorrow that says, you know, here's a car that drives itself, has no steering wheel, flies and swims when necessary, <laughs> you're going to alienate some of your market because it's too, it's too much. It's too innovative. It's too forward thinking. And so you want to have sort of a more metered and responsible approach to what you're doing where you're meeting consumers' expectations with one product and, you know, innovating just enough that you hold people's uh, attention. Because even if you have brand recognition, even if you have Coca-Cola type brand legacy in the automotive world, nobody wants to see the exact same model roll out year after year after year with no changes. So maybe that's not the most helpful answer, but ultimately the answer is both. No, that's great. And I love two of those examples that you gave because, Frank, you may not be old enough to remember it, but I am. And I, I gather most everybody else in this room is when Coca-Cola unveiled New Coke in the mid-80s, it was a certified disaster. Uh, so sometimes you're better off not tinkering with your product if it's something that, you, you know, you have 80 years of, of brand recognition built into. And the other one that you mentioned is, is, is cars. So I read an article in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks back about how uh, – Ford really uh, denigrated their brand in some sense, trying to roll out their sync technology that I think Microsoft built before it was really ready for prime time. So people were frustrated with it. It's buggy. They don't know how to use it or it doesn't work. Uh, and at the end of the day, that ends up bringing uh, 
you know, more negative sentiment to your brand than positive sentiment for your brand. At the same time, I did just see something, a headline, I didn't click on the article, but I think Google's driverless cars will not have steering wheels, and I'm not sure about even brakes. Uh, so, uh, so well, hopefully they haven't gotten too far ahead of the game there. Seth Behrensweig, next question is for you. You don't get asked to be on the Innovation Engine podcast without being innovative in your own right. Two different firms are represented here today, Behrensweig Leonard and Cloudigy. Can you talk a little bit about the synergy between the two firms and what you're doing to bring innovation to the legal space? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, as the managing partner of the law firm, it's always been my goal and it's always been the team's goal to really be unique from a creative standpoint. Businesses are required in the competitive marketplace to do things differently and be creative. There's absolutely no reason why their business law firm shouldn't be held to the same standard. And as a result of that, the firm should be able to demonstrate to the marketplace and to their clients that they're thinking outside the box, that they're able to come and bring ideas and people together to add unique value. So for example, one of the things that we've done is we've taken the Cloudigy Law Group, uh, of which uh, Clyde is, is a critical critical part of, together with the Behrensweig-Leonard team, and uh, we operate together as a unified team to bring intellectual property together, to interface that with government contracts. So one example of teaming and bringing things together in a unique way um, is the teaming relationship that Behrensweig-Leonard has with Cloudigy Law, and we uh, work together as a team here in our office suite in Tyson's Corner. As a result of that, we do other unique things. We recently uh, launched a unique blog uh, at govconip.com, which is a unique blog that brings together those two disciplines, intellectual property and government contracts, uh, which is really very rarely done out in the marketplace, despite the fact that there are many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of procurements out there right here in our own community, right here in our own backyard, um, where companies need to be able to just go to one office or go to one blog and just within one minute find out what are the answers to these questions that drive their business. Uh, some of the other things that we do that are creative and unique uh, that are outside the box as we are, for example, a presenting sponsor of a group known as the Corporate Huddle, which is a unique venue where we bring together, or I should say the group brings together, uh, former star professional athletes who are operating in the business world together with um, top-level, uh, very well-known blue-chip C-level executives in unique programming where um, they're able to network, mentor, talk about inspirational stories about how they help each other, and as a part of that, to also help mentor these athletes to help improve their lives and advance business literacy. So really what we try to do at the firm is to think outside the box, drive value, and really do what we feel a law firm needs to do to be able to bring a different value proposition to the table because if we're going to require companies out there to think outside the box, then their law firm needs to think outside the box and point to specific examples where they're able to drive that. So you mentioned the GovCon IP blog where you talk about the intersection of intellectual property law and the government contracting procurement process. Healthcare.gov launched this past year and it was really an unmitigated failure. And the procurement process for healthcare.gov is one of the many things that has been cited as being inherently broken in the government contracting space. Is there anything about the process right now that actually works well? Well, there's very little about that process that's been applied to um, uh, that healthcare initiative that's worked well at all. It's been a complete disaster. There are parts of the 
uh, federal procurement process that, that have worked well, but the irony is that a lot of the controversy for dropping the ball on that really um, directed anger into the wrong direction. People were fighting about it from a political standpoint without realizing that there were companies that went in and completely dropped the ball. The federal procurement officials dropped the ball because they didn't coordinate on the testing side. The contractors that walked in there dropped the ball because they were not able to tee up what they promised. And every day in our business where we work with government contractors, including those in the IP and in the high tech space, they look at this process and, and everybody shakes their head. So really, I think the two main takeaways from that is that, first of all, the system failed, and it failed miserably, because the people who are supposed to be doing their jobs dropped the ball. But I think the second takeaway from that is that it really continues to show why blue chip companies, especially in the IP and the tech space, really need to continue to step out on Front Street, demonstrate what they're able to do, and really work with their business partners to compete. There's a lot of money out there, and there are people that need these kinds of services. We're waiting for healthcare to make progress, and everybody's fighting about it, but yet the systems are exploding. Not only did the federal site crash, but a lot of the state sites didn't work either. So you have all these multiple levels of failure. I look at that and I say, these are multiple venues of opportunity. There are great companies out there that can drive this value as long as they continue to polish their process and understand how it works and work with advisors who can help them navigate through that process, let them be successful, and, and let them demonstrate that the entire healthcare initiative or anything else that they want to fight for in the nation's capital can also be successful. Okay, so in that same vein, what are you hoping to do with the GovCon IP site, and what are some of the topics that you've covered to this point? Well, I think what, what we've been aiming to do is to be able to cover some of the uh, issues that are unique where the government contracts world and the intellectual property world really come together, um, talking about risks that happen, different kinds of scope creep that can come into uh, an IP-related contract where companies want to go in, do good work, make the customer happy, but all of a sudden find themselves in a predicament of how are they able to protect themselves? How do they protect getting paid? How do they protect their intellectual property? How are they able to make sure that they don't miss those very small clauses and those elements that get plugged into that contract, which is the big difference between protecting their intellectual property with a strong picket fence around it and just giving it away to the government or somebody else on a joint venture or a team. So that's just another example of, of a unique blog and a resource that we put together. We would invite anyone to jump onto that blog, which uh, our firm, Barronsweig Leonard, works on uh, jointly with Cloudigy at govconip.com. Uh, and we will continue to work on those issues that hit the governments and, more importantly, government contractors' bottom lines every day as they try to grow their business in that space. Okay, great. So, Frank, you work with a lot of clients in the media and entertainment space. I want to ask you about content monetization and changes that you may have seen in that world over the course of the last several years. Uh, and in the context of a company like Spotify or a service like Spotify, where you hear kind of con conflicting things from artists about how they feel uh, the payment system is fair or unfair, what do you think about content monetization for artists, and have you seen things changing drastically over the course of the last several years as these services like Spotify exist? You know, the cases of Spotify and iTunes and Pandora uh, and even YouTube are, are interesting because the, the artists are going to be mixed on it. If you're an established artist, you're making a lot less money through Spotify than you are through conventional means. But if you're a nobody, 
Spotify gives you a le legitimate chance to be heard when a major label would never have taken a risk on you. So for the artists at the bottom, it's a chance to be heard. For artists who are at the top, it's they're making a fraction of what they used to. But the whole time, the consumer is always in favor of getting things for free or almost free. Um, and that's sort of one of the one of the downsides of the of the whole music industry is that on the consumer side everybody feels like they should be able to hear things for free everybody wants to go on youtube and be able to stream whatever they want um, and there's very little thought given to whether the original creator of the work is uh, is going to be getting compensated for that um, and the widespread availability of streaming media is not only displacing things like CD sales, which is kind of obvious because you're listening to either of those on a computer or other electronic uh, media, but it's also replacing live performance to an extent because um, really in the live performance context, that's the only opportunity that the artist has to charge what they think they're worth as opposed to what the consumer thinks they're worth. And so as that as the gap widens between what artists think their art is worth and what com consumers think the art is worth, you have more and more people going the streaming route because it's cheaper. And a lot of, a lot of the business side documents um, between artists and management, artists and venues, artists and record labels, haven't necessarily kept up with the pace of changes in the law and in changes in the way that media is consumed. A lot of publication contracts uh, don't account for things like digital publishing and uh, streaming services necessarily. So it's definitely important for anybody who wants to get into that area to make sure that their documentation is clear and that everything is spelled out and that you account for these 21st century realities where, uh, you know, I, everybody understands this day, this day and age that most media is consumed through some kind of streaming format and pu publishing contracts have to have to start reflecting that uh, yeah j just following up briefly on what frank was saying in our entertainment law practice one of the things that we really enjoy participating in is working with um, uh, artists in the music industry, as well as on-air personalities and other folks who are just one step away in terms of implementation of really plugging in to the right part of the engine and realizing their success. Um, and therefore, what we try to do is to help people in the entertainment industry put in those right pieces in their contracts to understand what's going on and changes in technology so that they can be successful. Um, these are great ideas. Sometimes they just need to be implemented in the right business way with the right document. And when you bring those things together and you plug them in uh, with the right elements, then it really brings everything back to an element of success. So that's what we enjoy doing as business attorneys uh, and, uh, and, and really including in the entertainment and music industry. So uh, Frank is a big part of that, and that's one of the unique aspects that we talked about earlier in terms of bringing all these disciplines together in the same space. Well, gentlemen, I don't know what your hourly rate is, but I'm quite certain that we don't want to overstay our welcome. Thanks so much for hosting us here in the Cloudigy and Berenswag Leonard Law Offices today, gentlemen. Once again, Seth Berenswag and Frank Galino of Berenswag Leonard and Clyde Finley of Cloudigy. 
Thanks very much, gentlemen. We'll keep an eye on the GovConIP.com blog and all your online properties. We'll also be keeping an eye out for you on TV, Seth. We know you make a lot of appearances there. So uh, CNN, Fox Business, everywhere you are, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for you. Thanks again, guys. Thank Thanks you. very much. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Barronsweig Leonard or Cloudigy, you can find them at their respective websites, BarronsweigLaw.com and CloudigyLaw.com. Berenzweig Law is B-E-R-E-N-Z-W-E-I-G, law.com. And Cloudigy is C-L-O-U-D-I-G-Y, law.com. Thanks again to Seth Berenzweig, Frank Galino, and Clyde Finley for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're very excited to have technology futurist, best-selling author, and one of the most popular influencers on LinkedIn with more than 345,000 followers, Daniel Burris on the podcast to talk about innovation and anticipating the future, why it pays to be an anticipatory organization, the difference between hard trends and soft trends, and why you're better off skipping your company's biggest problem rather than solving it. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.